Hi friends, welcome to another video and episode of the James Red Podcast. Today I'm here with my friend Will Crooks, who is my OG creative conversation buddy. And it's always so nice to talk to him. It's fantastic that I can still have a conversation with him, even though I live on the other side of the country. We used to have these in person. Uh, but he's a street portrait photographer, and he loves fashion and incorporating that into his photos. And he's also a visual director at the Community Journals in Greenville, South Carolina, which is where I met him and where I lived for a little while. And he is one of the most talented photographers I know, and I mean that. I mean that, Will. Oh, uh, embarrassment kicking in already. Honesty. <laughs> You're so, dude, uh, and like over the past little while, you've 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 blossomed in a new way. You do you do a great you do great things. Thank you, James. Yeah, you bet. I try man. I try really hard. That's the secret. Okay. <laughs> That's all I got. All right, great. And you we're done. Stop. Thanks, everybody. Have a good evening. I'm really hard. This has been most of the time, like at least four days of the week, hopefully five days of the week, hopefully seven days of the week. Wait, what? Oh, trying hard. Yeah. Oh, trying okay. hard. That's a, well, that's, that's all it is. As ma as many days as possible. Make sure you get your sleep though, because it will, it will kill you in a sinister way. You'll realize your family's gone. Nobody loves you anymore because you have, all your emotions are screwed up and you alienated everybody, but I hate to go down such a dark route so quick. Uh, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about building a project. And uh, for you, it's within the context of building a project in the photography world, since you are the visual director and a lot of your job is cr uh, creating, uh, creating photos for one, but also putting projects together with other people in order to create these well-lit, beautiful portraits that end up going to digital as well as print. And there's a different dynamic that comes with that versus being a freelance photographer who shoots, you know, weddings or birth photography or, sure. you know, uh, couples portraits, stock photography, yeah. what have you. It's, it's much less lonesome. And I want to speak to this idea of putting together a, a scaffolding for a project and conceptualizing and collaborating and all of this. And so uh, first off, how, what does that role look like for you at the community journals? Sure. I mean, it, it kind of comes in a few different forms, but I would say sort of the main capacity of that is uh, our writers pitch a story um, it gets approved from the editorial side of things from the, from an EIC and then sort of it launches into the phase of, you know, what, what are we going to do photographically to represent this? And I mean, sometimes it may not even be photographic. Sometimes, you know, we may be hiring an illustrator. We may be working in graphics. There's different things like that, but in general, like I'm most involved when it involves photography, either through myself or through a freelancer that I'm hiring. Um, so do you, I mean, do you really... make decisions around uh, design and overall aesthetic, or does that is that somebody else's role? How do you play into that? So, on the design side, I work. We have a pretty small team, so I work really closely with uh, the designers for the product, um, and we kind of talk about what will work and won't work. Um, there is sort of, I would say, they do handle 
more of that, but sort of for covers and the larger features, we sort of talk about like how many art elements, if there's going to be other graphic elements, if there's going to be illustrative elements, you know, kind of laying that first groundwork. And it's the same when talking with the writers is like the foundation is really key or you just kind of go into a shoot blind and come back with something that maybe is a really strong image, but doesn't work with the narrative the writer's telling or just doesn't work either too for the design say it's a one-page design where they want to integrate text you can take an incredible portrait but if the background's too busy they can't put text if, on if it. you don't leave room for the text to yeah exactly so it's like you know it can get a little technical but i think across anything it's like knowing that that foundation is really the key. So how would, well, very quickly, how would you describe the community journals as a, as a, an uh, idea and a concept? Okay. So community journals in its current state exists as a weekly newspaper slash features product, um, that's sort of designed more in a magazine way has more magazine-y features, but also features a new section and is community leaning, um, we also have another business, we have a business publication that's essentially like a weekly business magazine. It's designed just like a magazine, carries a small news section, but is more design heavy. Uh, town magazines, like a lifestyle product we have that comes out mm -hmm. once a month um, and sort of is very photo heavy, uh, beautiful design, much more intentional. And then we have a quarterly home magazine at home. So we sort of run the gamut of production cycles. Um, and then we do some niche pubs, like we do the visitor's guide for the city and a few things like that. So we kind of run the gamut of things that sit on the shelf a long time, things that are a little bit more focused digitally, things that are very heavy print products. Um, and then we also have a daily email thing, Greenville today. So we run like, the entire gamut of daily content. That's quite a bit of ongoing photography and creative projects, I'd say. Yeah. So it's, it provides a very interesting framework for working on a lot of different levels. And you guys are generally featuring, you know, businesses and artists and what, what kind of other things? I mean, it runs the gamut from literally like a wedding section to food you know, the arts and culture scene, obviously, to things even, you know, uh, protests. Hmm. I mean, it really kind of blends that sort of... Because Greenville, South like Carolina it, yeah. is known for its protests. Yes. Oh, yeah. Ugh, all of <laughs> all of the violent protests that go on, trash cans through Starbucks <laughs> windows, burning yeah, police exactly. cars. Yeah, all the time. But yeah, so I mean, it's like, it really encompasses interiors i mean from a photography standpoint i've had to shoot everything being a small company from interiors to product to food to portraiture to lifestyle to re more like you know photojournalistic type stuff um kind of the entire gamut i mean it's the most comprehensive photography job i've ever been involved with yeah yeah, yeah. i can imagine it seems that at least outwardly your role is to take these really beautiful, uh, generally environmental type portraits that you have control over different elements, such as the 
scene, the lighting, it's a bit more set up than something like a street portrait, which you which you also have done for a very long time, which I think played a huge role in getting you this job at this place, which yep. is a good example of how being a street photographer actually does have a financial benefit if you leverage it properly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not, 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 not always. Right, not but, always. You have to, but there is like, yeah, something strategic. can come out of it. I, do, yeah. I think it's really interesting how your style played in so well to what you're currently doing in a more in a differently evolved form. It's so, it's so interesting to me. I love it. Sure. I mean, it was definitely one of those things where, and you know, we've spoken to this a lot, like my street portrait work tended to be sort of editorializing the street. It was like a more polished kind of, uh, I used longer lenses. It was just sort of storytelling from a street portrait style in a way that isn't as common. Mm-hmm. I say most people generally work on like 50, 35, even as wide as 28. Um, you push in. Yeah. So it's like a different, um, it's a different style. And I mean, that's what I brought to sort of the Greenville journal was the idea that, you know, our weekly products really weren't newspapers and we were design wanting to design them with larger photo elements and then more like a magazine. So sort of why were we taking a photojournalistic approach when we could take an editorial approach to some topics that maybe, could use sort of this a little bit more style stylization. Yeah. Like perhaps. to stylize the image a little bit more when you, you always, you always spoke and this was an interesting term that stuck with me. You always said that you like to romanticize the street as well sure. in the way that you shot, which is very different than a lot of street photographers. A lot of people want to show the rawness of the mundane Whereas you found things that stuck out to you on an aesthetic st- uh, sense, you found people and walked up to them and said, hey, can I take your portrait? Let's walk around the corner so that we can find a really nice background, if you don't mind. And I'm going to put you on this wall that I love. So you're like scouting out backgrounds in your head, and then you're also scouting you're scouting the people to put on the backgrounds. And what came out of that was a pretty pretty interesting form of street photography and you know you've always mentioned that you've been inspired by like the sartorialist and that there are other people out there who do similar things to what you you do but i love the polish and the type of stuff that uh that you do it's it's funny you may have noticed i've been going a little bit more candid lately violently more candid lately yeah actually and like very environmental candid like Mm. where the the almost like cityscapes where the people play still an integral role but sort of they're very integrated in the environment especially like that recent motorcycle photograph that mm-hmm. was killer thank you yeah that was really good thank you <laughs> no i was curious uh, i was i was curious what you're because we haven't spoken to you about this since i i guess pushed away from street portraiture and for me i realized that I really enjoy not interacting with people. Like I, I really enjoy being hovering in the background and just being sort of voyeuristic in a sense. Yeah. And, uh, and I also realized that my photos got better. Like I was trying to figure out what I didn't like about my photos and it was a lack, it was a lack of environment. Like it was, I think I was trying to make that work when I was shooting portraits and there were times where I could, but I wanted to 
I wanted to use all of the elements of the city that I thought were so interesting. And so what I do is, you know, where a lot of street photographers will forsake the intricacies of composition a little bit and focus on the rawness of what they're trying to share and what they're trying, the story they're trying to tell, which is fantastic. I love that too. I wanted to sort of, I guess what you're saying, romanticize a little bit, but insert people into the environment. Be, be like, think intentionally about the background, almost in a Cartier type of way. Think intentionally about the background. Be, wait there patiently and let people come into the scene, uh, and, and let and let the let the right person come into the scene. Let the serendipitous person come in and um, and make it complete. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting shift. I mean, I think you always had a very good sense, and I think some of it's maybe your filmmaking background of like, I oftentimes describe your photographs to people as cinematic, and I think even more so sort of the new way you've been shooting and that you have a great idea of space and light and mood. And I think by working with more space, you're able to better build that mood because when you work in close and with street portraits, a lot of times it's like it's it can be hard to build mood to the level I think you you like. And I think even just back to like when you went out in the desert and did the uh, the sort of desert racing photo, the, the guys in the dune buggies. And oh, all that yeah, crazy yeah, on stuff. the sand dunes. Yeah, so like that like really stuck out to me in your work. And I think it's like. I guess just in how like me shooting with a longer lens and sort of choosing my light and where I want to photograph the person was like my way of better controlling the mood for myself um, and sort of being able to give myself a specific aesthetic and a specific mood through the light and the specific space and sort of the removal of other things. Mm. Um, I think by you sort of including more things you've sort of better created, I think, uh, the vision, at least I see in your work, it just seems like even more consistent in terms of work and also sort of a more distinctive perspective amongst a lot of people who, there's a lot of people who shoot, you know, like wide and close and sort of raw with street portraits. And then maybe also there's people who shoot like a lot of people who do like urban exploration or like just photographs of the city. Mm -hmm. But I think sort of, it's interesting to see you fusing those two areas really well mm -hmm. into these sort of candid moments where it's like the person plays a pivotal role, but they are a part of a greater scene. Mm -hmm. What well, for me, it's like the environment, the person becomes more interesting when put in their environment. And the environment becomes more interesting when a person is put in it. <laughs> so this sure. is a weird back and forth paradox. And I found that when I had to let go of the idea of feeling like I needed to interact with people. I think, I think street photographers struggle with this in one way or another where you either feel like you need to be super rogue Eric Kim in your face or you need to... Or you need to speak to people and, you know, have a nice conversation with them, get their story, be a little bit more photojournalistic. Both of those are perfectly valid approaches. But uh, for me, I was like, okay, I love to be very introverted on my photo walks, but I love to 
I want to ha- I want to not have to interact with people because I really do enjoy them more that way. And I want to get as close to people as I feel like I need to get and, and have the type of compositions that I'm after. And it's funny when I let go of that, I've been so much happier with the photos I've created. I thought they would be the reverse. I thought I'd be like, crap, I'm not like, I'm, you know, I'm not, because I'm trying not to get so close to people that I'm sacrificing something, but I've been so much happier because I, I see, I'm, I'm able to frame up the entire scene, just focus on framing up the entire scene and visualizing somebody coming into the spot, to just the right spot. And then I wait for them and then it works and it feels quite nice. So I've been enjoying that. And also breaking away from the street. Like, I feel like I couldn't, I feel like I couldn't take a picture of a sand dune, you know? Right. And and I'm sure it's nice for you, like with your work at the community journals, you get to, you get to venture into other territories. I mean, you get to go inside people's houses and you get to go to people's, you know, workshops and businesses and this sort of thing. And, uh, and, Diver- diversify what you're up to and I think for me it was like okay how do I do this how do I not hold on so tightly to the idea of being a street photographer that I don't allow myself to branch out into other environments that I'm so interested in especially in Utah holy crap yeah and how do I do that but also keep my stuff as curated as I want it to feel and so for me the common thread has just been the person right Maybe it's a little right. person, maybe it's a bigger person, but that's my common thread and also my post-processing and stuff like that. So it's nice to hear how you uh, perceive it. Cause I, you know, I, I, sure. I haven't been able to talk to a whole lot of people about how they perceive it yet or really anybody. So it's nice to, to learn from you. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, you know, I've enjoyed the work and I think it's always that thing, you know, with social media and wish digital now, you can see so much work and sometimes it can be overwhelming, but I think it's also a good parameter of like when you see someone, you know, or when you just see some work where you're like, this is sort of a departure from what I'm seeing everyone else doing. And it's not saying there's like no one else doing something similar, but I think it's like, it is sort of, I think your perspective seems more distinct through this and sort of, I think it's easier for the audience to sort of understand it. And I think I also definitely understand where you're talking about, you know, like with, for myself, with my work, getting to go into people's homes or doing these environmental portraits, it's kind of changed things. But I think it's also been interesting for me because I've sort of still been in a period of kind of questioning what I want my street work to be about now. Mm. Um, and I've sort of been leaning towards doing a little bit with like very wide focal lengths, like 35 millimeter, um, mm-hmm. and also shooting a little bit more 50, um, and just sort of rearranging what what it is I want out of a street portrait. And like I've made some that have what I want, and I've also sort of been enjoying the idea of, if not hasn't quite been executed the way I'd like overall, like of something like pairing a portrait that's very wide and environmental with a portrait that's sort of really tight, like a very tight portrait. Like a a gallery. Yeah. Like just like a, like a single pair of images with like, and they don't even necessarily get posted at the same time, like posted near each other, like back to back. And that like something that's just 
very environmental and then just super intimate and close and almost essentially no background. Um, yeah. And I've been kind of liking that. And I've also just been drawn way more to like faces rather than necessarily clothes and style as much, or perhaps like style in a much broader sense. Um, I don't know. I've definitely been influenced by maybe a deeper sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think expanding that perspective, like I've been looking at the New York times new section, the new look section since the passing of Bill Cunningham and sort of the photographers they've employed there and the new way they're kind of trying to approach the idea of style or style almost as culture, almost as like a sense of a place um, and of a people sort of epitomizing ideas or things like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. kind of a tangent, but that's maybe a topic for another day. I, no, I love it. I've always been fascinated by the way that you speak to style and fashion. Like you, what, I remember we were talking one day and you explained it to me as sort of as something along the lines of it being, it's an, it's an outer uh, expression of the inner self of the person. Like it's, sure. it speaks to who that person is. And it, we make these snap judgments about people, whether we realize it or not based on what they're wearing from head to toe, what their shoes are like. Uh, and I, I love that. I love that awareness. It's a lot of fun. So one thing that in regards to building a photography project, one thing yeah. that I think is important is to have a, a well-defined and meaningful direction, no matter what you're up to. And I'm sorry, photography project, any project that you're doing, having a, having a meaning and be and having a clear vision of what you're actually trying to create for many different reasons that I'm sure we can all understand. But uh, for you, what is the value on a practical level of making sure that you have a clear, you have a clear vision for what you're trying to create a direction and a meaning for the end goal of the work? Um, well, I think sort of to make it both like macro and sort of a neat, uh, specific example, um, I always just sort of link it back to, for my job, a writer writes a story and we have to create visuals that in some way, shape or form reference or speak to have some sort of intentionality in relation to the narrative. Mm-hmm. And without that the photos can be beautiful, but they just feel out of place. Um, and they just don't for better of lack of a better word, they just don't really work. So I think it's like without really thinking about like the framework you're going to work within, I think things also just fall apart. It's like when I first started doing street portraits, like I was shooting style and it was like a very focused thing. And you know, there's leeway in it, but like, I wasn't just going like, I'm going to take pictures of strangers. And if you apply no sort of framework to that, I think it's very hard to keep doing it mm-hmm. because like, as you work, you're like, this doesn't make sense with this. This isn't working. You know, you sort of feel all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that it still doesn't happen, but <laughs> you know, it's like the further you, if you want to take a project a long way, you can't have a shaky foundation. It's like building a building, right? Like yeah, absolutely. you have a very narrow base, you can't expect to build a very, very tall building. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably architect people who are going to say something about that. <laughs> you can, but as a theoretical example, I think it works pretty well. Yeah. Well, it's certainly having a narrow base can certainly present challenges 
I guess that's a conversation about pushing the boundaries. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So so having a solid foundation, I like that analogy of having a, if you're trying to build a tall tower that is beautiful, then if your foundation is made on, is built on sand, it's going to crumble at some point. And I, what I find is it crumbles slowly. Like it's almost nefarious. Like it's in the background and one day you wake up and you're like, I'm really not happy with what's going on here. And it's, it's like you have to stay vigilant to what's going on in your head, how you feel about your project. How happy are you with this thing? Because you could probably be happier. Just a, just a possibility. And maybe you're comfortable with it. But comfort doesn't always equal progress. Comfort is often antithetical to progress. That's the right word, right? Antithetical? Yeah, sure. Sometimes that sounds I, fancy. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like a good fancy word for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really doesn't matter if it actually means the thing. As no. Long, yeah. Use big enough words that nobody understands, and you're fine because it. Just, oh my gosh! And wow, I'm sure that is. I'm sure that man. He has such uh, elegant evenings. He sits down at beside the fireplace and smokes his cigar this way for some reason. What are we talking about? Hey, so how do you how do you make sure you stay on the that path once you start? And this is where I think it's an, it would be interesting to think about uh, collaboration. How maybe they can pull you in different directions that you don't mean to go. Sure. Um, I mean, I think you know uh, we'll just take an editorial story for example because it's easy. You know, you kind of have four perspectives going on mm. you have that of the photographer and you have even more if if i'm hiring someone because then there's the photographer we're hiring my direction is sort of an art director kind of role the design team's ideas the editor in chief's ideas and the writer's ideas so you can sort of have all these different perspectives and they're all valid um but they're all more concerned with different parts of the project um so i think it, it can be challenging um and you sort of want to get buy-in at some point from people because you know in the end people have to agree that this makes sense for the story um so there is sort of there's this tug of war and sometimes uh with writers they you know they may think about the story in a very different way and especially because with our weekly some of the writers are like uh, more they're journalists. Um, so they may have a more specific idea or a more narrow view of sort of how to tell a story. Um, and sort of working with me as a departure from the type of photojournalistic work they're used to mm. and more into this sort of stylized editorial way of storytelling that may be a more nuanced than sometimes what they're used to, especially working in a small city where, the common idea for photography is it just sort of illustrates a thing in a very simplistic and straightforward way. Yeah. Um, and sort of trying to take a more subtle approach sometimes doesn't really get the best response because mm -hmm. it takes a little bit more effort to digest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what's interesting though, is that the right for the right crowd I think it's more digestible. Like when when the person picks up the thing and they and they're engaging with something that's very polished, 
I think that that makes it more digestible for the right person, but maybe less digestible for particularly people internally who are used to a, like a status quo. But also, I guess, I don't know, who, who, who in the outside world would it be less digestible to? Um, I mean, I guess it's just if you have an image that's not super straightforward. Like an example I always bring up when the writers talk about things is like there's a guy that makes shoes, mm. right? You know, I I think it, it, a lot of people think the best photo of this is like him making shoes, him holding a shoe, a shoe and him. Mm. Whereas if the whole narrative is around this structure how is the photo adding a lot of value if it just literally shows here is man we were talking about and here is shoe he makes we were talking about <laughs> you know i i think sometimes people can be a little overly simplistic in how yeah. they think of like that and in some ways right like that is a more digestible image and that like it obviously takes the two points that are being made puts them into one image done you know you're not doing anything more conceptual or kind of different. You're not having to include multiple images. You're sort of telling the story in a very simplistic, easily digestible way with one image that encapsulates the very basis and sort of basics of the article. So do you feel like they're trying, that sometimes they're trying to approach it from a technical, straightforward, illustrative kind of way? Like they're, they're just trying to show the shoe that this is the shoe the guy creates and this is him making that shoe. And perhaps you're trying to get a more emotional aesthetic across. Sure, yeah. And I mean, sometimes, I'll be the first to admit, sometimes maybe the other approach is better for some stories, um, perhaps. But I think some of it too is, you know, I, I think about this a lot, is it's hard to be better than everyone at something like if you sort of approach how you're going to tell a story the exact same way everyone else does it's hard to do that better than everyone else ever has if you're sort of using the same toolkit thinking of it in the same way and framing it in the same way mm -hmm. um whereas if you can frame it in a different manner it's sort of like comparing an apple and an orange like yeah. if you're comparing two apples people are like well this apple is just better on these qualities and it's like it's easy to write down these comparison points mm -hmm. but when you have two things we'll just say an apple and a shoe suddenly <laughs> it's like they're kind of incomparable and i think by trying to create a visual narrative that isn't how it's been represented before at least for this particular person story object um you're sort of bringing a new perspective to the table that you know, isn't just a simple comparison of sort of megapixels and, yeah, you know, basics of lighting and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you're sort of bringing a different perspective. In. And I think that's where the value is for any creative is sort of perspective. Because if I think you take how anyone does something, it's probably not just that they're the they have the best technical skill and that's why people follow them. Um, I think in general, they have technical proficiencies, but they also have a very distinct perspective. Well, it's not, it's not, for me, it seems to be like the best art is a beautiful, harmonious marriage between technicality and emotionality. Yeah. They find this beautiful bit middle ground where it, it's punchy 
it it, it it's punchy it, it punches you in the the heartstrings but it's it does that through having a technical ability and an understanding of the rules and the, the the guidelines of how we interact with art and how our eyes perceive colors and all that all that fun stuff and that's how you tell you know that's that's the marriage that helps you tell a story momentary interlude because will had to fix his lighting situation and uh it looks infinitely better now this is beautiful thank you will okay it's, it's getting there thank you for next, your, next your attention time, to I'm detail really, detail next time we'll really blow you away i'm gonna have like three lights set up going on oh instead of stealing a lamp from the other room and kind of pointing at a wall except my walls are like well you can see what my walls are like so they don't really reflect light well so mm. next time we need some anamorphic lens flares as well can we get some of that <laughs> do you think they make like little attachments for webcams like uh if you go to china i'm sure will you get an anamorphic lens on my webcam yeah. Yeah, we're going to figure that out because that's got to happen. Okay, where were we at? Uh, so we're talking, oh yes, being more diplomatic. Have you yeah. have you had to learn how to better communicate with others in a creative capacity when there's emotions going around and you really want, you're, you, you really want the image to be, I don't know, cropped a certain way. You really want that, that uh, you really want the particular image where the hand is doing just this uh, a very specific thing that you love and they're like no 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 we need this one yeah i mean uh, i won't i won't be facetious to some of it like i do sort of being the one who takes the photographs and it's not having a photo editor for a lot of my work i kind of um choose what i send to people and I do sort of self-select a little bit to sort of ward off certain things, but I also like to give people plenty of options and realize like from a reasonable standpoint, what do they really need? So, I mean, I think learning to work with a team and then learning to work with editors sometimes that you may not agree with um, and sort of that want to tell a story a different way. I mean, it's definitely one of those things where, what I try to do is be very proactive in the sense that I try to get their opinions early on mm. and include them in the process. And this goes all the way to the photo subject too. Um, I try to involve people early. I try to share the ideas. I think the worst thing you can do is sort of hoard your ideas and then just kind of be like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but really you do like just let people know at the beginning because, I mean, even if you're going to do it anyways, <laughs> if they disagree, people are a lot more open um, at the beginning. And also, I just say always be open to concepts that, you know, some of our writers are less willing or less interested in sharing ideas. Um, but some of our writers, especially some of the people who kind of have come up in the newer age of journalism and sort of multimedia and having to do a little photography themselves um, – you know, I think it's easy as the person who's the photographer to go, I have the best ideas. 
no one else can ever come up with an idea that's actually good and possible to execute. But we had one story where we were doing something on bat researchers and we couldn't take them into a cave. So we sort of had to shoot this idea and they had this idea of shooting them a certain way. And like, they didn't know how to technically do it. And they were respectful of me in the sense that they were like, Hey, this may not be possible, but it ended up being an amazing idea. And it was like a killer cover and it did very, you know, it was very good for us. Um, and it was something I, I didn't think of. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, I think the hardest thing is sort of having your own distinct voice while also always being open to what people may bring to the table. Um, and that's hard, like especially when it comes from a lot of different sides. And I think it's easy to just say, yeah, collaboration, easy. But you do have a lot of personalities going on. Um, but I just think being upfront, sharing your ideas as soon as you have them, queuing in as many of the parties as possible so that everyone has a handle on it because it's easy to be like, well, I talked to the writer, but did you talk with the designer? But did you also talk with the edit, you know, the EIC, the editor in chief? Like, have you communicated with all of these people because they may bring up concerns? You may want to photograph. I've had things where I'm like, this is what I'm going to do, and they're like, well, actually, it's not really about the people; it's more about the product, or it's more about this side of things. And you may be like, well, you know, visually, we really need to focus on this, and you guys reach a compromise in the middle. But sometimes it may be you're like you just assumed, you know, this story is people heavy when actually it's all product heavy and no one's even really quoted much. So I think it saves you a lot of pain sort of getting as much information from the people as you can kind of act. I always think of myself as like try to act dumb, like ask dumb questions. I think this is really important. Like I don't mean that in a way of like asking irrelevant questions, but like ask more questions than you think like you know what color is this yeah i mean there can be simple things literally you know like did the writer already go to the space what does the space look like are we going to shoot this in the studio or does it make sense to go to the location like there's a lot of information you can glean from asking people uh, you know just simple questions about the subject and simple questions about the story that may radically change how you're going to approach it visually Um, And I think that's when you're collaborating with people too, you know, you have to understand their vision and the part that they sort of have to execute well, because if you just sort of only focus on your section, how are you going to sort of work as a group? Because in the end, right, the story has words, it's designed and you know then there's an editor and then there's also the photos so it's like you have all of these components and if one person's just sort of working in their own world even if say it's the editor and they edit out the part that sort of needs to be in there for the visuals to make sense suddenly you know everything starts falling apart mm. i think one thing that you spoke to there which is interesting is accepting that it's a collaborative Maybe you didn't specifically speak to this, but this is what like it came to my head as you were as you were speaking to sure. it because I'm somebody who I operate on a, a solo level with almost all of my creative things, and I've had to learn how to shift that dynamic because I'm working with my wife more now, and it's beautiful, and I realize that I have to accept that this is no longer a solo project. This is now a collaborative project. It must be approached differently. And I think that what I, what I try to do 
is I tried to still maintain that solo feel when it is clashing violently with the collaboration that needs to take place. And I love that you mentioned going to people at the beginning of the process and uh, along the way as well, but specifically at the beginning of the proce process because you can integrate all of those things, whether you agree with them or not or what you think about them. You're able to process all of that before it all begins. And you can choose what parts of that and how you want to integrate that into your end product as opposed to missing all of that at the beginning and then everybody's everybody's coming to you with critiques and you're like no 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 I put all this time into this I already have an emotional investment now I I want it to be this way so there's an emotional there's a strong emotional attachment that can make you insane and close your mind off to their critiques if you do it in the beginning you avoid a lot of that does that make sense yeah and I mean I think you also hit on a really good point which is like another layer I have to deal with being full-time in a company is like on top of everyone else, there's also the product itself and sort of the voice we're trying to have for the product and the audience that's trying to reach. And, you know, we do try to push, I try to push boundaries visually in some ways, but there is also sort of the end reader, the advertiser, you know, the, the digestibility. Who, yes. Like, is this right for this? Like, does this, and I think with visual language, like you can push things farther than people expect and they'll be okay with it. But like, it, you know, there's just these different stages of things. And, you know, like you, like when I, you know, you know, in that collaborative environment, I came from doing street portraiture where I set all the rules. Like it was my blog, you know, there weren't advertisers. I wasn't worried about, people's perspectives or what kind of people I photograph. Like it was solely and completely my vision, which is crucial for many creators. Yes. And I think it's crucial even now that I've moved on, like that perspective. And I mean, I've, you know, just because you collaborate well, doesn't mean I haven't had drag out screaming matches, to be honest with editors. I've had in the yeah, past. Yeah, yeah. because you do, Right. Like you do have to retain a core of yourself, but you also have to realize when when you're sort of just fighting to fight mm. and when it really, I think, has sort of there, there's more validity to your claim. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's that's super interesting stuff. I also think that it's important to treat to create a, a wall like a stone wall in your head between a solo project and, and a collaborative project because the end result can be different from both of those. And what I mean by that is that the end result can be equally as good from both types of projects, but you get something from the end result of a collaborative project that you don't get from a solo project. You get something from a solo project that you don't get from a collaborative project. Either my wife's home or somebody's breaking into my house. Um, <laughs> my dog's barking. So let's hope I don't die on the stream. But uh, if, if so, Will, can you post this for me? Yeah, That'd be I great. got you. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Uh, so but a good example of this is I watched a documentary about uh, a single scene from Star Wars. And the documentary was about the, all of the apart, all of apartment, all of the departments it goes through for this single scene to be made. 
there's a fight scene at the end of the movie and it was amazing i was very inspired by it and it went through i mean you you're talking about having a small team this went through hundreds of people literally hundreds of people for a yeah. scene that's i don't know what three minutes long right and so you you know you, you duplicate that across the film and you have a feature-length film that's how it works but what can happen with collaborative projects, and I would be very interested to hear your thoughts on this, is it can become muddy and it can lose its vision because there's too many hands in the pot. But what can also happen, and I think what did happen with Star Wars, even though people have criticized this, the prequels endlessly, is that <laughs> is that it has it, it does have a clear defined vision, even though there are hundreds of people making decisions about what the end result ends up looking like and there's a person for every job like they they fragment jobs in the cinema world it's like you have a guy whose only job is to hold the camera you have a guy whose only job is to pull focus you have a guy whose only job is to work the crane you have a guy whose only job is to operate the camera at the top of the crane you have a guy whose only job is to animate the lava the this person only does the the rotoscoping and so it's it's much more fragment, fragmented than the gorilla version of youtube video making or street photography that we do so yeah yeah so, so, but what <laughs> to came, say the least what came out of that was a, a, a pretty pretty beautiful example of how having a massive team of people allows you to create a massive project that turns out to have a, a clear narrative and a clear story. And it does all the things it, it's trying to do. Whereas uh, you think that you have to get rid of that if you have collaboration, but there is a right way to collaborate. It just involves communication, which us creatives tend to have a very hard time with. But I'm, clear, I'm curious what you think about having a lot of hands in the pot and how to avoid it becoming uh, a muddy mess or a corporate feeling you know syst sure. uh, systematic kind of conveyor belt kind of feeling thing okay yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting question and i think sort of i think it really links back to the talk about a foundation and i think it's sort of getting buy-in from people early about courses of action and even if those courses drift and float but i think like the more early buy-in you can have and the more everyone agrees at the beginning the less you have to sort of fight with this sort of later stage um it's sort of like getting sign off on a cover from our publisher like you know you get it to them early so that if you know they are the final say if they don't like it <laughs> you can reassess as a team um, rather than showing it to them at the end. And it's the same with working with a team. It's like if I go and photograph something and don't consult anyone and then I just show that to them the day before we go to press and we're like laying things out and they go, this doesn't make any sense with the story at all. And I go, well, it kind of does, but maybe it really doesn't. You know, you're just kind of, you know, you're screwed. Like there's no way of kind of fixing it. So I think like, and I think too, like more hands do get muddied. I mean, I think all, most of our jobs are very compartmentalized. And I think the current team I have, everyone understands the boundaries of their job while also being willing to provide helpful information to other people without 
too often really overreaching. And I think that's sort of the line. It's just like with the writers, I may know something about the topic or something and just say like, hey, like this perspective is kind of interesting. Like it's as long as it's set up under the expectations that they're not going to suddenly have to rewrite the piece and I'm going to be angry with them if they mm. don't, you know, take this advice. It's the same with photos. Like it's like I, you never know where an incredible idea will come from, whether like in you or out. And sometimes it's someone giving you an idea that you don't use, but then fosters what you either you want to go the opposite way or you just it gives you this sort of another set of eyes into it um mm -hmm. and it also varies like the one thing that's sort of we have you know these editorial stories and these stories that are writing based we also have a section that we've been cultivating that i've been working on mainly by myself which is like a photo essay section and literally like we have just a few you know sentences written about the piece and it's just mainly photographs those pieces and like you're speaking to like those I think of as much less collaborative. People may give like themes, but like how we carry them out and the way we construct the narrative is much more just solely driven by me um, versus these pieces where we are, you know, there's a distinct narrative. And, and some pieces, you know, are very long and the photos play a smaller role and some pieces are very short and photos really help supplement the narrative. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, never being, you know, the person who thinks they're, you know, too big for their shoes and kind of not overreaching. Um, but it can be hard, too. It's like sometimes you want to tell a story a certain way, but the way they need to write it is different. And it's like you have to sort of understand where your place is in the cycle and kind of not to beat a dead horse, but it's really just about like everybody getting together at the beginning and agreeing on at least a basic framework so one person doesn't just shoot out way over here and then also shifts though because like especially with the daily you know with the weekly people stories shift especially news pieces so it's also like keeping in communication so it's like forming that foundation and then like at pivotal points maintaining communication um across the platform would you say that you dedicate as much time to communicating as you do to taking photos and conceptualizing? Yeah. I mean, you know, between meetings and sort of all those steps and between communicating, I guess the last step I've still left out is like communicating the ideas to the photo subject, right? Because even though we're not being hired, right, this isn't, you know, commercial work where you're being hired to photograph them. That's like you have to share everything you know, working editorial is a weird balance. It's like, they're not your client. So you want to execute your vision, but they have to buy into it. Like you can't make someone make a photo they don't want to make. Like if they don't want to do it, they just won't do it. Mm. So with them, I take the exact same approach in that. Well, you can in North Korea. <laughs> yeah. But you know there's what? We few... have liberty here in the great US of A. Yes. There's, <laughs> there's no, you know, that my photography studio doesn't double as a torture chamber. Um, oh, okay. I was, that was another I question I was going to ask. I know you thought it did, but... I just I'm wanted actually... to break down some of the emotional barriers before we got to that question, because that's a tough one, you know? Yeah. Is your, I... is your work environment a torture chamber? Yeah. Generally not. I mean, for some people, maybe they feel like it is having their picture taken, but I try to alleviate that as much as I can. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, I'm totally, like, lost on this thought, but I'm going to wrap back around to Sorry, it. Sorry, I brought in North Korea. Like, and I know, it's just like... 
all of a sudden I'm just way over here now in North Korea land and I need to get back to America. I mean, I'm swooping back over here, but it takes a long time to swim across the ocean. Um, I, I hear that you can yeah. get in with the with the Chinese at the border and like have a little exchange that like under the radar, you go, go through the river okay. and into the there woods we go. and now stuff. Now that I've made it to China, I know back where we were now. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, so sort of working with, uh, thank you for rescuing that. China is enlightening, you know. James James went for that rescue mission to save me from my own befuddlement. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, working, and it's like, I, God, I just keep repeating myself, but it sort of comes back to when you, like, I try to reach out to the subject as soon as I can. One, because, you know, you have to get the shoot scheduled on their time and they're not paying for it, so sometimes it can be a little challenging from just like a real-life standpoint. But also, more importantly, it's like, I really like to share images with people before they come. Like I like to share the idea because some ideas, especially things that I try to do for the business journal, for some of the publications, like they're not the traditional way that it would be treated. So they're used to like, if I just tell them show up, they're not going to be ready for what I want. And if someone's sort of surprised by something, you know, it's just like for a human being, like if a dog jumps out and scares you, you're more likely to be wary of the dog than if you see the dog walking towards you mm. from a hundred yards away and you just see him calmly walking towards and you. And it starts talking to you. It's like, hi buddy. Yeah. I mean, then you're like, am I tripping? What's going on? Mm. But I think it's just that same thing of like getting them the images earlier because in the end, a portrait or even photograph product is a collaborative process. And by showing them your ideas, showing them you've thought about the process, it's allowed me to get a lot more time with them. And then I also share my portfolio to give them idea of how I work and to explain why I might need a little bit more time than a traditional photojournalist would to execute the shoot. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, I think, crosses each barrier level of, you know, in the collaborative process, even if you feel like, hey, I'm a wedding photographer, I just work on my own. You're always having to collaborate because you're working with your client. You mm -hmm. know, there's always someone, I mean, me and you did the thing that was like the least collaborative, which was like street portraiture for ourselves, but it was for an internet audience. So in a strange right. sense, there was still some sense of. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're collaborating. Yeah. You're collaborating with your audience. What? Sure. How, yeah. What does your audience want? That's an interesting I mean, point. That's, that's like an, that's definitely way harder to gauge than mm -hmm. like when you sit down with someone at a table. But I think like it's easy to think in that solo mindset when in fact, like anything you create, right? The person who's consuming it is in a sense, a collaborator, or if anyone's paying you to do any kind of work, you're having to collaborate with them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sort of one of those things where no matter what area, you know, what creative field you work in, unless you're like, you know, speaking of enlightenment, unless you're just like a monk meditating out by yourself in the middle of the woods, but then maybe you have a dope Instagram account and you're actually really famous. It's true. That's true. Which is common. Yeah, I mean that's that's the future now. Yeah, that's I mean that's the thing that all those California kids are doing at this point, I think. But, yeah. So have you had a particularly tough project? Yeah, so the one the project, I guess it was just it was really just a single photo assignment, but it turned into three shoots over <laughs> three weeks, okay. which is a, like a long time for a weekly pub type shoot um, mm. to go on for. And it had to deal with a conflict on several levels and that the sort of people writing the piece 
didn't necessarily have a conflict. I had a conflict with the I, the way the publisher, who in the end has the final call, um, wanted the piece represented, contrasted very strongly with what the individual wanted um, and was willing to do. So we sort of ran into this issue where I also didn't clear everything with everyone and I just took what I could and they were like, we want to do, I, I really want to do a group shot. I don't want to be shown by myself. Like my team needs to be shown and supported and blah, 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 blah. Mm. So I did that shoot, come back and then my editors go, that's not what we need. We need this. And then I come back to them and they say, I'm not willing to do this. So we ran through this back and forth, <laughs> all of these shoots and finally reached this compromise but, you know, a lot of that could have been avoided if we if I just really everyone had communicated to the team and we had communicated with the publisher and everyone had sort of understood this person is not going to do this. They will not be on the cover by themselves unless I take a picture and say, I promise this won't go on the cover. And then we just lie and put it there. There was no sort of working around the structure, hmm. um, whereas my publisher felt almost the antithesis way where they're just like, this has to be this way for the cover. So it, it did become one of these things where, you know, going to the higher ups and I think as a creative, it's like learning to explain yourself and not just sort of push everything away and clam up. I think it's hard sometimes dealing with people who sort of don't understand your vision or don't understand the technical issues or the personnel issues or the subject issues you're running into. So I think it's always sort of important to go to them and explain it to them yourselves and sort of try to come to them with a solution that maybe meets in the middle. So we ended up photographing like them as the key person with another person in the frame, but less important and sort of getting away from the original narrative and the writer sort of restructured things. So sometimes things just get messy. Mm. Um, how did and, that... go ahead? No, yeah, go ahead. I was curious how patience play, like having a patient character played a role in that process for you. You're a pretty laid back guy, but, but, uh, did you have to, did you have to sort of force yourself to go, okay, we're going to figure this oh, yeah. out. You got to get that yoga breathing. You got to be like, okay. and then you go home and you scream and yell yeah. and then you go back to work and you go, let's figure this out guys. <laughs> Um, yeah, I See, mean, my super... theory is that you just repress it for years and then it just explodes out like a volcano. One and that, day. exactly. Then that's you... why I don't have hair. You... It's just yeah. all of stress. Of oh, okay. Then just, it's just all, it just all falls off. Oh, I never realized that. Wow. That's actually what it is. I, I'm sorry. I mean, that's, that must be, um, that must be really difficult. And I know a good counselor, uh, but yeah, no, you could repress it and then one day you could just like run over a kid with a car and then it's all better. That's one way to approach it, but there are ramifications to that. It's maybe not the best strategy. Probably not. Yeah, but a strategy. But yeah. I mean, I do think it is like as a creative, you feel ownership over what you create and it's sort of your, you know, for me, photography is my passion and like making portraits is my passion and like you don't want to compromise or you get frustrated that like other people's visions are overwhelming your vision or you're having to settle. And I mean, sometimes you do have to settle. Like I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that, you know, uh, you know, there hasn't been a time where I've had to settle into a vision. That's maybe not a hundred percent what I wanted. You know, I think overall I've been able to manage it in a way where my vision's respected enough and, 
makes enough sense within the context where it's usually used. But I mean, it can be challenging to go from the subject who's like yelling at you about not wanting to do it one way to then your publisher who's yelling at you for not wanting to do it the way the subject mm-hmm. wants. And you sort of, you know, you just have to keep a cool head because in the end too, like it's your job to make the photo. Mm-hmm. So like you can be mad and angry, but you have to resolve the problem. None of the other people are going to. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it is sort of being a mediator sometimes um, and being able to explain things to people who maybe aren't creatives or aren't interested in, you know, necessarily the technical or the nitty gritty of how, why you want to do it one that one way, you know, yeah, you yeah. kind of have to navigate that world. I, th- um, I think commercial or editorial. Yeah. Or, I think people, I think people underestimate the importance of like, I guess I would call it the layman's tongue, the ability to break concepts down for people. A lot of times people don't work well together because they don't understand. They don't, they don't, nobody has painted a picture for them of what things are supposed to look like in when they're working with somebody in a realm that they don't find themselves in normally. So if they're a more, you know, if they're a business person and you're trying to take a portrait of them, they don't, the only uh, interaction they may have had in the past was something very specific, right? You had somebody take a portrait of them in a very traditional kind of way. And you come in there and you're trying to be all artistic. And then they're like, all right, let me go back. Let me go to what I know because this is where I feel comfortable. And I have to be competent because I'm a business person and this is how I do business. And you come in, you, you have to come in there and explain to them and be able to break down to them and paint a picture, give them a narrative be, compel them to go along the the journey with you and i think a lot of people skip that part they or they'll do some discount version of that <laughs> which is which is really you can avoid like i i really think you can avoid a lot of metaphorical fist fights in life if you were a bit more intentional about how you communicated things some yeah, people are I mean, just I, insane, but for sure. the most part. I completely agree. I mean, I've got people to do things that people did not think they would do. Like, mm. And a lot of that is being upfront in certain ways. Um, and also, it's just like photographs. Like, whenever I work with a client, whether they're hiring me for freelance or it's for my editorial work that I do for my, my job, um, a lot of it is like if people – send me text about the mood or the look they want. They don't send me photos. I ask for photos and I just ask for photos until I get photos because, (laughs) and it's the same for me. Like I always supply people with photographs. I never just like write this long. It could be an amazing, like just piece of descriptive literature that I write. That's like super compelling, but like words just mean different things to different people, even amongst photographers. Like, you know, moody means a lot of things like dark, you know, like, you know, even high key. Minimalistic. You know, even, yeah. Like all those terms have very different frameworks and, you know, having worked with a lot of different art directors and things like the biggest thing is to always ask for specificity. And then when you're supplying images to people, like 
I give them a mood board or I, you know, I give them a selections of photos. And I may say like, well, some of these photos are just references for poses and some of these may be references for the lighting, but I try to build an overall mood. And I think like both for showing the client and also showing my editorial team, you know, the writers aren't as versed in a visual language. So, you know, me and you know you and me james we may be able to just kind of talk through an idea and kind of understand how we're going to visually present it especially too is like we know each other's work so we'd be like there's a camaraderie yes and there's like a shared language it may not be perfect all the time and i still would think that like showing either of us an image would still be more effective (laughs) or a set of images you know to truly (laughs) encapsulate sort of having a shared understanding um but i think you know, I always share photos with people um, for cli- for the you know for your editorial subjects, for your commercial clients, for you know the editorial team that I work with, because it gives people that direct reference point and helps bridge that gap of sort of a technical language barrier. Which I think, like you touched on before, is like a reason why a lot of things fail is people get mad because they're like, "This isn't what we talked about," but really y'all talked about you just didn't share the same language when you talked about it Mm. and you guys set different expectations and you guys had different meanings of like like even the word lifestyle photograph right like that means different things to different people yeah 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 there there has to be a there has to be a pretty intentional breakdown of (laughs) of concepts and i and ideas that lead to the, the idea that you're trying to create, I think. Um, so, and what has been a particularly interesting project for you? Um, should it be more collaborative or can it be more personal, single leaning concept? Mm, uh, what's one, okay, yeah. What's one where the presence of other voices helped it be interesting and and come out on the end as something really special okay uh an example i think that sort of had to involve multiple people and sort of originated as sort of two people's ideas was uh we took a uh, protest and we recorded audio from different people and then supplied very tight, intimate portraits of those people. Mm. Um, and I think sort of uh, combining this sort of skill set of the writer having a good ability of sort of pulling stories from people and creating that humanity, and then pairing it with a visual presentation of sort of very intimate portraits that's sort of we wanted to find a way to tell the narrative that felt personal. Cause I think the one thing with protests is it can be easy to think of groups as sort of mob mentality. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a group of people. And I think that also makes it easy for the side that doesn't like them to dehumanize them and just think of them as this sort of mob or group that they disagree with. And I think it's a lot e- harder when you sit down with someone one-on-one and you guys have a conversation. Like I think people walk away either respecting their perspective more or, they're not going to be as ugly about it because, you know, Mm. it's a sort of individualist experience. So we want to take that idea of like, what if they had to sit down with the, you know, across the table from the person who's protesting Mm. 
um, by doing these sort of very, I guess, like almost like Martin Schaller-esque portraits of just sort of very simple backgrounds, very tight, not at all interested necessarily in the grand, in the protest photos that, you know, there's incredibly compelling protest photographs, but like we were joking about earlier, Greenville is not a place of sort of these frenzied, furied protests that have visuals that may, they're, they're usually pretty staid and controlled. Yeah. So it's sort of like the visuals almost don't match the narrative in a weird sense, even though it's like what's actually happening. But like, mm -hmm. I think the dissenting voices, they can just sort of feel like there's nothing going on. Mm -hmm. um, so by sort of creating this pairing, it was sort of a way to bring in how the writers like to tell stories with how I like to create visuals. And it paired really well together in a way where the writer taking a quick snapshot wouldn't work photographically. And me interviewing them, I guarantee you, would not pull the sort of ideas. And then our editor comes in with sort of selecting the sound bites and building that narrative and deciding whose stories to choose and sort of compiling the work that we each did individually and saying, like, you know, how is this going to work together and sort of collaborating across that platform um, to create something that lives in a digital space that isn't a video necessarily, but sort of exists in this interesting space in between things. Um, yeah. So I thought that was an interesting project. Um, That's a perfect where, example of all of all of the stuff we've been talking about kind of coming to a head because for one, that's a very meaningful project. I, I see the meaning in it because I think we need, we need to be taking people who are political, uh, people who are speaking about political things, people have passion, who have passions about political things, and making them personal because, uh, sweet Lord, we, le we need that right now in our country. Uh, but so there's the meaning and there's the, you know, it started with a firm foundation and it's a good example of how you can take two people from two different or a few people from different disciplines, pull them together into something collaborative that's really special that you couldn't do quite the same way if it was a solo project. Sure. And I think it also is one of those things where it it sort of shows, just like you were talking about the compartmentalization, but this is just on like a micro scale, like the compartmentalization of, you know, making that consistent thing for that movie uh, you know, for the Star Wars movie, for that fight scene, like it's on this micro scale of like, okay, like, you know, it's also an example too of each person had a way they wanted to tell the story. And instead of, you know, the photographs detracting from their narrative, it enhances it. Instead of their storytelling distracting from my photographs, it enhances it. Mm. It's sort of one of those things where it's an example where you can really work and like, these portraits are like exactly how I would do the portraits, even if we weren't going to tell the narrative this way, because mm -hmm. that's how I thought about the narrative. And for the writer, you know, they wanted to create this humanized element and they didn't want to have to paraphrase, or like rewrite these people's narratives. So it kind of gave us a non-traditional platform piece. Um, and obviously too, it's right. Getting the support. Like we weren't producing a piece that could go into print. So our, you know, our, our publishers and our editors need to be okay with the resources being allocated towards something that, you know, wasn't going to our, you know, the print product, mm -hmm. which is sort of considered the premium part of our business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting because 
you were speaking to it complementing each other, right? Your photographer, their their um, their narrative focus complementing your photography focus, and when you have a good team, and when you have a team that was I think selected well, and I also think that the leader, which is something we haven't spoke about too much today, but the leader is highly important in helping something be cohesive and reach its vision because you're going to have people who want something to go this way and want something to go this way. Sometimes you can't reach a conclusion and you you end up in a really bad place where everyone hates everybody if you don't have a leader to step in and say, okay, this is what we're doing. Somebody to make a final decision, say, I respect everything that you guys are doing, but this is what we're going to do. Uh, also, it's when you have a nice team like that that works well together, you're able to create a meal of sorts that's like, you know, you have like fish and fish, you know, you can pair it with rice, but maybe you don't want to pair it with like spaghetti because that would detract from the fish and the fish would detract from the spaghetti, even though both sure. of those are glorious things. Particularly with really like, I like when there's like a lot of meatballs and um That'll be our next conversation. It'll it'll be three hours long. Just about meatballs. Meatballs. Yeah. Yeah. Easily three hours. How to pair meatballs with fish. <laughs> That's exciting. Do some food photography. We can get our friend Andrew in on that. Right? There oh, you go. Beautiful. That is oh, we'll make yeah. the first collaboration. Talk about collaboration and elevating <laughs> your artistic dish, right? Uh so what was I saying? Oh yeah, when everything clicks together when you have the right team and I, it's really hard to do on a big scale I think but when you have the right nice little small team that can uh, feed off of each other and elevate the entire process and the entire end result into something special I think that's a fantastic thing sure and I mean I think you did hit on a good point which is like is the negative side of collaboration which is when you get too many hands in the kitchen, it's just like, I think the other issue is sometimes when there's too many hands in the kitchens, it happens when some of those hands weren't in on the foundation. Like for example, mm. you know, our, a, a publisher or an EIC and maybe just the writer and the photographer talk about something, go and do it. And then when those hands do get involved, it, it can really mess up the process and sort of skew everything because the writer interviewed for a certain type of story, the photographer photographed for a certain presentation, and suddenly you're having to take those materials and make something new with it, and it just doesn't quite fit together right. Um, so I do think it's one of those things where it's like, be careful starting creative projects that involve way too many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um especially if you're not used to that and you don't have a good structure for it and you haven't worked with a lot of those people because, you know, it's like when me and you started doing, you know, some of our photography videos together, um, you know, there's just two of us. So it was, it was like kind of, it wasn't that hard. Like just we both, both do basically to, the we, same thing as well. And yeah. And we said to agree to like, like get together physically and record something. Right. Right. Like, but if we had invited like, three more people in different genres in like just simply simply from like a scheduling standpoint <laughs> suddenly it would have been way harder yeah like just yeah. to get to like the most baseline basic thing is like if everyone can't be there it can't happen mm-hmm. so 
I think it's one of those things where it's like understanding how many people need to be involved in a project project and like understanding the scale of those things and the con the benefits of adding more perspective. It's like a photo shoot, like the benefits of having a stylist and a set designer and someone do wardrobe and assistant. And there's, there's shoots we do like our, our big fashion shoots where all those things help so much because of what we are going to try to produce. There's other times where if I'm trying to take an intimate portrait of, you know, a, a widow who, you know, lost her husband, like those things can be detrimental to the process. And it's sort of understanding that like, you know, a makeup artist standing in and dabbing them is just essentially ruining your chance to make this intimate connection. And you're trying to create this intimate portrait. And those are the moments where, you know, having an assistant adjusting your life is even distracting. Like you, you need to understand, and this is impossible just to know. And it's not like, you know, we all make mistakes with this, but when a small team works, and when you need to bring people's perspectives in or expertise to really add value and when what you're trying to create, it's like street portraits. Like it wouldn't make a lot of sense if suddenly I was like, Hey James, I'm just going to start putting my street portraits with your street portraits. And we're just going to stick them all together on a site without, you know, really thinking about, do they make sense together? Are we going to change the way we shoot? Are we going to think about how they're going to interact? Are we going to discuss on a regular basis what we're posting, how they're going to interact with each other and our post-processing styles and, you know, all of these things. Like, we'll just call it jameswill.com. Exactly, right? And it's like <laughs> understanding what things need more people or what things have to have more people and then what things just start to get weighed down. And I think everyone sees it in, you know, different mediums and different things where sort of, things may be technically more perfect because more people are involved, but they lose sort of a, a sense of soul and sort of a sense of creative capital value yeah. coolness. Oh. Well, and I think they, another huge issue that you can run into is when you get too many people in there, it, it starts to feel a little bit like the government, everything gets weighed down and everything moves really slowly. Decisions can't be made and you can over you can over inflate you can overfill the boat of creativity and it starts sinking and you can't it doesn't it doesn't have it's not nimble right yeah no yeah i mean there's definitely that thing of you know you know the larger the group of people involved it's just like the photo essay section compared to when we're photographing a cover for the photo essays i get approval from the eic that a topic is acceptable and that's it. There's no writers involved. There's nothing else. There's no scheduling conflicts. There's no concern about, well, we got the photos in, but the right, you know, the story isn't in, or there's no concern. Sometimes you shoot something and then the writer comes back and they go, Oh, there's just no story here. You know, you don't have these concerns. You know, there's essentially two parties. And then once you get just that basic acceptance, it essentially turns into a one man show. And it's much easier to be nimble and adjust your schedule and sort of pump out those products. And that's exactly why I wanted to start that section was to have this sort of free roam, create creative time for myself within the publications to explore topics I was interested in and not have to rely on just photographing the stories that the writers bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the last thing I want to talk to you about is how is how important is it for you to maintain your solo project in street photography? How does that keep you from going insane and running through the town with a samurai sword killing people? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a weird one because, I mean, there's definitely been a struggle lately to maintain it at a great level, and it's definitely affected me some. Um, some of it's like I go out and shoot, but sometimes I don't make the photos because it's like the sort of amount of creative capital I feel like is just pumped into what I have to do for my job sometimes. Um, mm. you, you feel creatively dry. Yeah, I think sometimes too, because uh, I have the unique position with my job where I do sort of, I feel like I interject, I get to interject my creative voice a lot in those products and by having to do that and by doing that, uh, it makes it harder to produce the personal work. But I also think like my personal work is crucial and has always been crucial to my perspective in photography and sort of how I've differentiated myself in the marketplace because I came into photography through this perspective that is different and that didn't generate any sort of income at first mm. and was like not I wasn't trying to shoot weddings in the trendy way that makes you money like I, I it was something that didn't concern the monetary side of things which I always think in terms of like building your perspective is essential because your your voice is going to be determined for you if you're having to just create or you're just choosing to create under the strictures of where you live, especially if you're in a small place like Greenville where creatively there's not a ton of people that are just like really pushing boundaries visually. Um, and there's not a lot of clients looking for that kind of work. So I think it's one of those things where it, it informs things. And I think the introduction of the photo essay is a way for me to carry my personal work like, for instance, we did a section on Artisphere, which is a local artist festival, uh, arts festival um, in Greenville. And we literally did, like, a street style of Artisphere. And I literally just photographed it how I would do my personal work. Mm. So it's sort of fine. I've sort of found a way through photo essays to engage some of the ways I like to tell stories. Another sort of way we did it was we went to South Carolina Comic Con and Although we didn't do street photography in the normal sense, like I would run around and pull people who did cosplay costumes, sort of photograph them in a very dramatic lit way that sort of has a cinematic theatrical feel because I felt like that's what it represented. But I thought like they were in a sense of style camp. Um, so even though I was using lighting and sort of do, producing it in a different way, I was still doing the thing I always, I, I've always liked to do, which is what romanticize and sort of remove people from their original environment mm. a little bit. Um, so I think it's one of those things where I've tried to grow the way I can execute that pure, that more pure perspective across this platform. And then also I think though it's sort of been a yin and yang of like the more polished and sort of more way I work with lighting for work sort of made me in a way want my street portraits to have even more of a stylized, maybe romanticized feel, I guess, or just like I, I'm even more intentional with the lighting and I'm more specific about the gestures and I want it 
to start, I, I want the line to be blurred between sort of, is this person a friend? Is this person a stranger? Is this person a photo subject for editorial work? Like, I don't want there to feel like there's a boundary. Mm. Um, and maybe that's how like my personal work gets to, in a sense, continue itself through my professional work. Um, but then I also do think there's like an important feeling of like going out, getting back to your roots, producing that work. So I don't know. It, it's a strange dynamic for me. Like it, I think they inform each other and I think I haven't done as much street work, but in a sense I've been able to push parts of my job into the realm of what I like to do. Um, and I think that's like an important thing too, in that sometimes you have to create the work for yourself either within, you know, the company you work for or other things. And sometimes you may not get paid for it. You may not, you just may be more work for you. Like the photo essay section is just more work for me in one sense. And that it's just a brand new section that's expected to be produced every month or every two weeks. And you know, it, it can be a little overwhelming, but also to gain more creative control, you know, sometimes you have to make something that people aren't necessarily asking for. But if your company says, yeah, sure, you can do that. I think it can open doors in any creative field. When you, it's almost like you think in that situation that adding on another project would make things harder and it would be too much to tolerate. But if you're, if it's something you're excited about, I found that adding on that extra bit of like literal work can make you enjoy your job more. So it's not the work so much as the passion for the work. And so if you include that, that makes you feel more of a connection to your job. You feel more okay with doing the other projects that you're less excited about. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think it helps kind of control the burnout, even though ironically you're like putting in more effort. I think it sort of fulfills you. And I mean, I still do street work. I think it's just like, I am in a weird transitional zone of like what my street work means. And I think the groups and sort of the idea of style and sort of outsider culture, because I think in the end, like my style photographs are more about people being outsiders or being part of these sort of less than normal groups. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's pushed into like wanting to do these photo essays that maybe delve more specifically into these groups um, and into these sort of subcultures and sort of like how you felt restricted by saying like, okay, I have to like go up to people and make street portraits and that's how it is. It's like now you make some pictures close and some pictures far and maybe you still do a few street portraits, but they're mainly candidates and like you've removed, like it's good to work in a box, but I think there can also be a point where like, you need to open up one part of a box. You can, you know, you still want constraints to help, you know, with that creativity. But I think there's like a point where you say, okay, I'm going to open the side. So for me, it was like being like, okay, these don't just have to be, you know, completely like walk up to a random person, make their portrait. It can be more intentional. It can be more focused work, but it is about like, representing certain groups even if it's like these sort of very polished studio looking images and then also these street images i think it's more about sort of these ideas i think about a lot of like outsider culture and how style is an armor and sort of either it's who you think you are or you who you want to be or who you want to pretend to be 
Mm. Um, and I think that runs across all the work. I mean, the comic con's an obvious example, even going to the art thing, like people, you know, one represent themselves a certain way, you know, there's this artwork that's representing these artists, but then on top of that, there's how the artists dress and there's how the people buying the art dress. And, you know, there's sort of just all these layers of context sort of hidden in something that seems very superfluous and that doesn't really matter. Um, but it is like how we judge people, right? Like, I mean, you take someone who, you know, is down on their luck, you give them a haircut and put them in a nice suit and suddenly no one's bothering them for sitting on a bench. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so yeah. even sleeping on a bench, yeah. but then you completely reverse that and suddenly we treat them terribly and mm. they could be a millionaire, right? Like it's, it's so embedded culturally that literally like you'll get like, you could be harassed by <laughs> law enforcement just on this sort of framework because of how deeply it's built into the fact that like, we don't know most people we walk by on the street. Yeah. So like the way we make judgments on them is like their actions. So if they're acting erratically and how they're dressed. And how it's they almost rep- like we use their, their outfit as a sort of checkbox, like you see, or a sort of set of checkboxes. Okay. This person checks this one, checks this one, checks this one. So maybe the checkbox for the person who's not so well dressed is, potentially dangerous sure. uh, i mean it's like potentially smelly <laughs> potentially yeah, I mean, uninteresting it, it, right like it, it has that effect and it, you know it's it's curious you know and, and it runs beyond that obviously it runs you know to you know grooming and ethnicity you know there's a multitude of levels beyond that but i i think it's just all of my work i try to deal with that idea for my personal work at least um, that's kind of the idea and the part of culture that I'm always interested in exploring. You, you seem to wrestle with that intently, and I, lo- I love that. Like, it yeah. seems to be a very psychological pursuit for you, what you're trying to do with your work. That's a big deal. I think people need to, some people need to hear that. That's yeah, it's a struggle all the time. <laughs> right. But that means <laughs> it's just like a perpetual struggle. Well, it's like you spoke to it earlier. I mean, you know, you spoke to like, you're like, you didn't feel like it, your work was accomplishing or you were, it just wasn't what you were wanting it to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I'm kind of in the midst of that right now. And I'm like still trying to figure out also just that weird line of like, you know, if it's published for my work, does that mean it's less me than if I just posted to my blog? Mm-hmm. Like, where where is that line? And like, I recently separated my social media into two accounts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I'm also like, should I have done that? <laughs> yeah, that's a whole. Uh, that's a whole. Yeah, that's yeah. like a four hour talk of me. Explain, so we won't go into that. That'll so. be our next one. I think it's uh, a good. We... Yeah, that, I think this is a good place to wrap up one because I think you're breaking up a little bit probably because my wife is watching Team Mom in the other room. Two, because uh, what was the other thing? I don't know. I forget. Anyway, that's there's one. I think that it's interesting how you're able to take the foundation. You're able to take the, the backlog of your work as a street photographer and now apply it to this new venture at your job and it's almost like you have this you, you're trying to build the Empire State Building and that's your job that's your that's your work at the community journals but before that you had this foundation we were talking about foundations earlier 
that you're going to build the Empire State Building on, but that found like the Empire State Building is I don't know what covers uh, yeah. what, a couple of acres. That foundation is like 590 acres. You have this huge foundation, so that provides you a level of competence, but also confidence going in to this job that you know your thing. And so this is another reason why I think having a diligent solo project is incredibly important because it allows you to be confident when faced with collaboration, which can very <laughs> sure. easily make you not so confident. Yeah. And if you're trying to replace that confidence with something else, like uh, like some sort of faux confidence or ego or you know, some sort of masquerade that that can really that can really go sideways quickly. So it's important to build real confidence, I think. What do you think yeah. of that? I think it's pretty strong wrap up there. Very good. All You're right. getting pretty good at those. Thank you. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> That's the secret. Try real hard. Let's wrap it up. Wait, let me wrap up my section. Try real hard. And be really nice to people, even when you really just want to scream at them. But you just be really nice. And then you go home and you scream in your car on the drive home. So at the end like, of go, yeah. oh, go ahead. I didn't want yeah. to interrupt no, that just, glory. You just, you just scream in your car. Yeah. <laughs> this, is like, this is like my essential life structure. Is like you try really hard and you scream in your car and then you're really polite to the people okay. that you wanted to scream at. Uh, you've mentioned that a couple of times. I think that's a real thing for you, Will. No, I know. This is like 100% real Will talking about like what he does on his car ride home on days that yeah. don't go as well as the days where collaboration is beautiful and magical. And right. It changes the world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the people next to you. They think you're a freaking lunatic. You're just like, oh, yeah. that's, that's, I mean, that's exactly what I do. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty comical. I except like it, man. In, you got to do something like that. Like afterwards, like it's funny. Like it's funny now, but mm -hmm. it's not so funny then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you have to be, it's like, if you can be intentional about how you handle that, it can be a really good thing. I think that's why a lot of people become MMA fighters so that they can hit things yeah. to get out their, their aggression. Exactly. I just don't have to hit things. I just like, it's like yoga it's like yoga breathing but like for anger release it's like aggro like aggro yoga breathing aggro yoga that's what i think about aggro yoga not to be confused with acro yoga okay what the real thing i want to know is like what's going to be the i think you need to mention star wars in the little tagline like be like the prequels were actually good and then you'll get a million people to watch this oh, yeah. video and you'll get so much hate comments. They won't even watch the video to know yeah. that we really didn't even really talk about it. They'll just put hate comments down there about the prequels. Like you'll get 800 million comments about the prequels being terrible. And then there'll be like three people who'll be like, they're pretty good. And then that's going to launch like the argument of yes. the century. I think I should make it the title. And then the thumbnail can just be... Jar Jar Binks. Oh no! <laughs> and oh, man. I don't know. Oh, like uh, the te there's text, right? There's big text oh. that just says he saved the prequels. <laughs> the greatest character in the Star Wars universe. I'm Jar -Jar pretty. Binks. I'm pretty sure somebody would like send a bomb to my front door. <laughs> 
yeah, you, you gotta be careful messing with the Star Wars, dude. <laughs> That's it. Oh man, see now I want to talk about that. Okay, we're gonna we'll save that one. All right. Do you like Star Wars? Is that something we could we could roll about, or did I, I don't think I could do a three hour Star Wars. I've seen all I've seen all Star Wars movies. But okay. Like, I don't know if I could go to the level like you went to. When you were <laughs> Are you like a fifty percent fan? Seventy, twenty. I mean, I just don't know the I don't know the rating scale of like what what is like intense or not. Mm. Like, I like I from I've seen all the movies. I've seen all the movies more than once, except maybe the newest one. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know it's where not, that puts me. On this don't, you're not missing I don't, anything. I think I'm pretty like here-ish on. The, I did not like the last movie, by the way. The okay, Force so. Awakens or Rogue One? The Force Awakens. I liked Rogue One. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I um. I liked. I compared to the newest one, The Last Jedi. The oh. Force Awakens is beautiful. Oh wait, the, wait. Sorry, I was backwards. The newest. I don't like the newest new one. You, so you don't like the Last Jedi? Yes. yes. Thank you. Okay. I do. I thought the Force Awakens was much better. Great. Okay. I agree with you. Yes. I think the and last. I thought Rogue One was good. I think the Last I just, Jedi the last was a travesty. Jedi was the worst movie ever because one, I mean, they had Luke Skywalker drinking milk from that weird creature. <laughs> two, he was like a whiny seven-year-old boy. It's like he had never even trained to be a Jedi. He was more whiny than he was in the very first Star Wars movie. <laughs> he was more wise in the first Star Wars, really. Yes, like it was like how could it go this far backwards? Yeah. And then. When it's, do you think it's going to be a cool fight scene? He just dissolves himself into the force. Yeah. So okay, my biggest, my biggest issue with the Last Jedi, <clears throat> oh, two biggest issues. One is a global issue, and it's based around the amount of people that were introduced to the film that should not, should have never existed. They dedicated all this time to start to begin building like Snoke stories <laughs> well no Snoke is good we can hang on to Snoke I mean they killed him but, but yeah that's what I mean they killed him though like he oh, was, yeah. like we built all this narrative and there was like I was like who's it gonna be and they're like oh it doesn't matter because he actually was just super weak and useless and now he's dead right no the way they killed Snoke was like it almost felt like they were intentionally trying to be infuriating about it but the they introduced all these new people instead of dedicating time to building the the people we were just introduced to in the last film. Okay. Yeah. So all these new people came in that may know you got you got purple hair chick, you know, purple hair uh, social justice warrior chick. You got the you got uh, the Asian girl. You got yeah. uh, what was another one? There's a couple. Of, there was a couple of big ones. Uh, oh, the guy who was the thief. Who they were supposed oh, to? Yeah. He comes in and then turns bad, and it's like, I, and I didn't and care about him the entire time. Benicio del Toro for it, so I thought he was going to be important. He's a good actor. Yeah, they cast a good actor, and then they're like, all right, yeah, he actually just doesn't matter at all. Yeah, that, that was the movie of like, here's a bunch of characters that don't matter at all, and then also here's some characters who should matter, and then we just kill them. Right. So it's like we have built no plot. We've killed the only characters left that did matter. Now there's just like three characters left mm -hmm. and these random characters that had no development and probably will get no development in the next movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'll ignore the spacewalk, but my main issue, <laughs> my other main issue is that it, what infuriates me is what they did with Luke at the end where he shows up 
And this is his moment where he's going to be noble and wise. And he's going to go, you know what? You don't have to do that. Like Luke's whole premise throughout all the, the, uh, the original movies was that he believed in the people who were the most evil. Like he believed in his father all the way up until the end. His father was, was the, the worst person in the galaxy. He killed thousands and thousands of people. And he said to him every time, like his father would metaphorically slap him in the face. And he was like, you can still be good. You can still be good. So that was his whole thing. And so he comes in the end of The Last Jedi and you think, okay, he's going to he's gonna do that. And he did that a little bit and it was great and whatever. And But Kylo, so you're, there's this tension. You don't know if Kylo's going to change or if he's going to fight him. And then Kylo goes, yeah, I'm going to kill you now. And then he starts shooting the the, the thing. Like yeah. every gorilla walker starts shooting at him and blowing up the ground. And then he's still there, which is awesome, right? Yeah. Oh, I my was gosh. Like, I was like, oh, my gosh. They saved this movie for being the worst Star Wars movie ever. Right, right. And then. And then, so, and then you, you you watch this and then he comes out the end of it and he's un he's unscathed and at that moment you go luke is the greatest jedi ever this is amazing but then they take this and they they throw it into a trash compactor and just crush it when you realize he's a hologram that took away the power of the moment he wasn't even like i don't care that he projected himself across the universe that doesn't i don't care about that like it would have been more like, amazing. They, are, they had holograms in all the movies. Like regardless that he projected himself, it's like whatever. It's not <laughs> right. I mean, it was just like, and then he swings, and you know the lightsaber goes. But it took the power away from that moment of him surviving all of that. Yes. And then Kylo just kind of swings the thing through him, and then he's like, "See you later, bud," or whatever he did. And then all of a sudden, Luke has a heart attack on a rock back on his planet. And the only conclusion that I can pull from this is he force projected himself so hard that he killed himself, yeah. which is, and Luke is the the most legendary character in Star Wars. <laughs> Why would you kill him that way? It was so weak. It was it would have been better if he'd gone there. And even if Kylo Ren had killed him, it would have been better. Yeah, right. Anything, right. Anything, anything would have been better than right. a force projection. And then like, he's just like, Ugh. Yeah, no, he cuts like, him. That took too much out of me. It's like, really? That took too much out of you? Why didn't you just have somebody throw down a little chip thing and make a hologram of you? Yeah. And 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 it would have <laughs> I would have been okay with Kylo Ren coming to that planet. They get in a little fight. Kylo Ren, you know, because Luke's so old, you know, he get he betters him, chops his head off, and his head lives for a second and says, You can still become good, Kylo, and then he dies. Like that would have been way That'd better. Be totally fine. Or he totally could have like, I won't fight you, Kylo. You can just kill me. And then Kylo kills him because he's like reached enlightenment. So he's like, you know what? Like I've given you what I gave my father here. Just mm. do it. And that would have been bold. Him. Yeah. I still would have been fine. I would have fine with any of that. I just was not fine with anything that happened in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then Snoke gets cut was, in half. That in the most... was just made it even worse. It was yeah, just yeah. like, why even introduce, like he had zero value. Why introduce After, him at all? Yeah. Like, oh, why did he exist? Yeah. Like, if if he had no, like, it's like, okay, he tempted Kylo to the dark side, but kind of not really because Kylo's re- tempted to the dark side because Luke kind of failed him by, like, pulling his lightsaber out when he saw the evil in him. Like, 
and then they don't explain who Snoke is at all, and it's like Snoke was supposed to have like there was like I feel bad for all the fan ideas. You know how many more there's going to be now about who he is? Like the fan fiction, like yeah. this is who Snoke actually is. It's like oh great, now we're gonna get eight hundred million more, and it will never be resolved until somebody offhandedly says Snoke was this, and they're like oh what, <laughs> right. It's going to be like in some lame interview, someone's just going to be like, yeah, this is what Snoke was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And then everyone's going to be like, I mean, it's also, do you think some of the fact that each one is directed by someone else and isn't each one written by someone else? I think so, yeah. I think they they individually wrote it. And I think that J.J. Like- Abrams gave him like his notes and he didn't he didn't do what, like he diverged from that. J.J. Abrams should have just done all of them. Yeah, he did. I think he did a great job with the first one. I think it was pretty good. I would have been. I think it just would have been better. I think it just this. This was an example. You know what we should use this example for? Collaboration gone wrong. <laughs> right. This right. is like too many, too many hands in the pot. Because what? it's like the movies are so sequential. Like the problem is, it's not like a movie series where like the next one can kind of just not be about the same thing. Mm. And just sort of have like similar characters, but like a very different universe or like plot. Hmm. It's like, it's just so sequential. Like it, it, the characters are so rooted in like, there there has to be a consistent, consistent through line. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I think that's like one of the problems. It's like, it's such a through line series of movies Mm -hmm. that like, it's so hard. I think it's just like when they do the prequels, like it's so hard to continue that narrative that's meant to span nine movies. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's I mean it's a it's a semi impossible problem at this point. Like and I think that Disney, now that Disney has the reins, what we're seeing is that getting it's it's losing I think it's losing its direction and it's going a lot of different direction and perhaps there's some monetary reasons for that but i don't know but at least with the like with the prequels like people criticized them but it was a clear vision from george lucas yeah yeah um are you speaking yeah. to somebody else in your house sorry no somebody i just i thought i heard sarah at the door but one sarah oh there's, okay. there's nobody at the door okay Um, okay yeah no i mean i yeah the sequels for all of their flaws like they didn't have the problem that that last movie had just nothing made any sense things were just killed people were just killed randomly there's characters that like why was benicino zotori's character even exist like why did he need to exist like why did he need they gave him like people got too much screen time for no reason it was almost like they just had they're like we need to kill x number of people off it just felt like a filler movie. Like it felt like it was just a bunch of things that were to fill in during a real movie to fill in the holes. And they're like, okay, we just need to get to X point where there's only Kylo and Ray and okay, great. And right. like how we get there, no one cares. Right. And so what we you don't care at all. What you just did is a good example of something, which is what, what it's memorable memorability, which is you just mentioned, three different names of people who are huge parts of the movie for you and you actually care about them. That's why you remember their name is because you care about them. But for example, Rogue One, do you, can you name anybody in Rogue One? No. Okay. (laughs) So 
So you have, so the people who are the memorable ones who we actually care about, it means that they did a good job building their story to some extent. Yeah. We actually care about what's happening to them. We want them to succeed, which yeah. is a sign of a good storyline. Well, in this one, they took, they took the spotlights away from them and put them on the, this Asian chick and this yeah. guy who has a, I think he had a stutter, or the, you know, the yeah. thief guy. Then you got the, they, they focus on, um, uh, what was the first one I mentioned? That was another one. The, oh yeah, purple hair chick. She flies the yeah. she flies the ship hyperdrive through the thing and saves the day after tell after keeping this whole plot from um I forget the other guy's name the the guy who flies the X wing. Yeah, it's like there was this whole thing where she was she was actually wise, but she wasn't telling him, and he was he, she was treating him like he was a child, and the whole thing was just, it just. It wasn't compelling. It wasn't interesting. They yeah. could have focused all this time on developing Ray and Luke and Kylo and Snoke. They took Snoke away, which is such a such a he was the overarching evil. Now he's gone. It's like if they killed the Emperor just randomly before the end of the uh, of a new hope. Star. Yeah, like they're just like, <laughs> all right, he's gone. Actually, he wasn't important at all. Whereas, like, for the whole thing, he was, like, this overarching force. Like, he almost wasn't even a person in us. Like, he existed as, like, this extreme force. Yes, yes. He was the ultimate evil that had to be conquered. Yes. And, like, and it then created an interesting narrative, too, because, like, Darth Vader was never quite just the antagonist. Right? He, He existed in this very interesting dualistic plane where there, but now, like with Kylo, it's like you don't have that, so you just have him and Ray mm-hmm. as these like it, it sort of simplifies it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Level. Which I don't know. Maybe that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to simplify the whole thing and put the focus on Kylo and Ray. Which hopefully they, hopefully that pans out. I don't mind them putting the focus on Kylo and Ray. Sure, it's fine. Because Kylo is an actual, like, Kylo is a nuanced character who we care about. He's an amazing evil character because you feel you you don't just feel like he's he's just ultimately evil. He's conflicted and he's like petulant yeah. and he's doesn't he's there because he's hurt, right? Which is how Darth Vader got to where he got. So we really yeah. we want him to become good. What's going to happen to him? Sure, and, and I get like eliminating i get not having luke and snoke even exist i do get to get that point because it is sort of this idea of like everything old is washed away Mm. and there's only the new right right but i just think like the way they were removed just made no sense it should have been more legendary i think yeah should have just seemed like they didn't want to have to deal with it so they just got rid of them (laughs) right Right. Like, especially Snoke. I mean, Luke still quite a bit, but, like, to have waited so long for Luke to return, I think there's also just a simple fan problem of, like, you have waited all this time for Luke. Yeah. And then they just, it's like, and then he's just wimpy, annoying. We lo- yeah, we love Luke, and it's, it's like, like, what have you done to to our hero? It's like, he's just terrible in every respect. And then it's like, his redemption is barely a redemption. Like, barely. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, you're kind of like, 
and then the scene where he's like with Yoda and like complaining and then the tree gets caught on fire and he's like whining. It's just like, what? Like, how did he spend all this time? Like at the end of the, the original trilogy, like he's like such a different being. And it's like, how could just like Kylo betraying him, like just destroy mm. and like, cause it's supposed to exist as this like sort of other, like this, like, right. Like the Jedi, it's like this, like, other plane of existence like being enlightened like being yeah. the buddha and then yeah. suddenly the buddha just goes back to being like a 15 year old kid and like is hiding on island like, i don't want to do anything like he's like shirking all responsibilities right and then like still doesn't even kind of resolve it at the end right. either in any meaningful way hmm. yeah i don't know freaking stupid star wars yeah it's sad because i you know i I, you just have it makes you have to let go of some stuff you know yes maybe that's what it's really about they're trying to get you to let go <laughs> they're trying to act they're I trying to dismantle Han- the star wars universe so that I, everybody will stop caring about it i thought han solo movie was also better than i haven't even seen that one yet i it got terrible reviews i still think it it like followed a plot structure that like was better focused yeah like and it's like it's like it kind of kind of like into the prequels like is it perfect most definitely not Mm. does it like make sense yes like does it kind of touch on why characters are a certain way does it introduce like the main characters that are interesting yes and is it like mainly focused on those main people minus like one person who's like important to him you know like it's like another it's like yes it's not just like randomly like solo movie except it's actually he's just a minor character who doesn't matter and it's really about these random people who also don't matter Mm. and then it ends like the main five people like remember them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely okay well i'm gonna need you to write down notes for Star, about Star Wars and your thoughts on it and the prequels and the original ones. views later. Like, oh, and, did you believe they said that? And also, you know, maybe we can go a different direction. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, who knows. And we'll we'll hold that off until next time and we'll wrap it up here. Uh, where can people find you? Oh, people can find me. Oh, where can people find me? Okay, you can find me. Oh no! I'm, oh god! I didn't move my computer this whole time until right now. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Will Crooks Photo. That's like editorial work. So that's where all that stuff lives. And then Whack Avenue over here at Whack Avenue. The infamous Avenue. Yeah, it's super infamous. It's super stupid name, but I have to live with it because I chose it a long time ago. It's not stupid. It's a great name. It's still there. <laughs> it's um, a brand now. <laughs> yeah. You can't do anything about it now. You got to just accept it. You just got to live with your decisions like in Star Wars. That's they what. Have to live, yes. They have to live with their decisions they made. Yeah. Whack Avenue is your The Last Jedi, Will. And you have to, you have to deal with that. <laughs> All right, Jay. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll link below to those things. This has been a lovely conversation. Uh, we're going to do this again soon, I hope. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you so much for watching and or listening. Goodbye. Bye, guys.